Amen. Take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark this evening. And, uh, and what we've done, I don't know if you... And, and we've been kind of in Mark, looking at some things. But today we're going to look at what's been traditionally called the unforgivable, or the, depending on your Bible translation, the unpardonable sin. Now, if you ask people what the unforgivable sin is, you'll get a, a variety of answers. Raise your hand real quick if you've ever heard of the unforgivable, unpardonable sin. Have you ever heard that expression before? And it sounds strange because we sing songs, Jesus paid it all, and, and we know that we can be forgiven of all our sins. And, and then you read a Bible verse that talks about an unforgivable, unpardonable sin. Now, there, again, there's a lot of different opinions about what that is. Look at this next slide. There are some people that teach that murder is the unpardonable sin. If you take a life, that's it. It's over. You cannot be forgiven. But if that was true, it's not. And it would write off Moses and, and David and probably the Apostle Paul. Others, look at this next one. I've heard people teach that adultery was the unpardonable sin. You know, Jesus teaches if you look at a woman and lust with her in your heart, now you've committed adultery, so guess what? We're all going to hell if that's true. Because we know all men and everyone, all women have lusted at some point in their life, in their heart. Uh, King David committed adultery and murder. That's a double whammy. And so that would mean that he's double unforgivable and unpardonable. And so, well, the woman in the well, right? She had five husbands in the, and the one that she was with then wasn't her husband. And so she, uh, Jesus spoke with her and the the woman that was actually caught in adultery in John chapter 8, and Jesus said, you know, where are those who condemn you? There are none, Lord. Well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. So we know that it's not adultery. Those people were all forgiven by God. Look at this next slide. Some people think that denying Jesus, especially under the threat of persecution. In other words, if the, the police come in here uh, uh, tonight and rounded people up for being Christians, and they, they um, took you down to the jail and... Uh, and they said, uh, are, are you a Christian or not? And you're like, nope. I was just visiting, checking it out. I just want to see what those weirdos were up to, right? To deny Christ, especially in the time of persecution. Some people believe that's the unpardonable sin, uh, but that's not true. Peter denied Christ a few times. And, um, and yet we know that he uh, was forgiven. Je matter of fact, Jesus made a very special point of singling him out and making sure that he understood that he was forgiven forgiven. Uh, probably the most common thought uh, uh, as far as the unpardonable sin. Look at this next slide. Most people believe it's suicide. And I'm always really surprised when I hear Baptists uh, say that, they, you know, that suicide is an unpardonable sin. This is a teaching that comes from the Roman Catholic Church. And like many of their teachings, it's just terrible. Now, you won't find this in Scripture, anywhere in Scripture, that somehow suicide is the unpardonable sin. Now it's true that sin is self, I mean that it's sin and that it's self-murder, but you're not going to find a single Bible verse anywhere in scripture that even remotely comes close to hinting at the fact that if you commit suicide, you automatically go to hell. Uh, some will say, well, if you end your life with that sin of self-murder, then you can't be forgiven of that sin because you can't ask for forgiveness because you're dead so that's why you go to hell, because you didn't ask for uh, forgiveness. That's a misunderstanding of salvation and what it means to be saved. Look at this next slide. When you repent of your sin and believe the gospel, you're forgiven of all your sin, past, present, and future, all your sin. 
Look at this next slide. That's a big Bible word we like to call justification, a big theology word, justification. You're justified by Christ, right? You're justified before the Father as if you're sinless because of what Jesus has done for us. You are forever forgiven. You're free from the guilt and the penalty of your sin. Well, you say, well, that's fine, but I still sin, right? So I get saved, but I still sin after becoming a Christian. Well, that's correct. We do still sin. Uh, Justification means that we've been freed from the penalty of sin, the penalty of sin. But as long as you're in this body, Christ is going to be working on you to free you from the power of sin. And don't confuse the two. It's a battle every day, isn't it? Uh, Over sin and the flesh. And so we've got the Spirit living in us, helping us to say no. When we before, we were just on our own. Look at this next slide. And so as we grow and walk with God, we should get better and better at saying no to sin and yes to God. That's the idea. Again, that's another big theology word. Look at this next slide. It's the process of sanctification. You're being sanctified. Hopefully, the long, as you walk with Christ and you're in His Word and you abide in Him and His Spirit, and you become more and more like Christ and less and less like the old you. Every true Christian dies positionally perfect and forgiven by Christ and in Christ. Every Christian dies positionally perfect and forgiven in Christ. No Christian has ever died practically perfect, like in their life, having achieved perfection. Nobody's ever done that. So you're positionally in your relationship with the Father, perfect, but practically you're still dealing with sin in the flesh. So once Christians die, die, they're free from the penalty of sin, they're free from the power of sin, and they're finally free from the presence of sin. But the power of sin and the presence of sin doesn't leave you until you leave this earth. And once you have that in heaven, you have it forever. Now, I could go on and on about when you think about this unforgivable sin and what people think is unforgivable and unpardonable. And we all have different opinions about that. But scripture on this is pretty clear. But none of those things that we mentioned, murder and adultery and denying Christ in times of persecution or even suicide, Uh, are the unforgivable or unpardonable sin. It's just not true. So what is? Well, look with me. We're going to start in Mark chapter 3, and I'm going to start in verse 20. We're going to... These passages go together, but you may not see it when you first read it. It almost reads like, here's a little sub-story, and then here's a sub-thing, and here's another thing. But all these passages actually go together. So look at verse number 20. Excuse me. It says, then the multitude came together again so they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, and when Jesus' own people heard about this, they went out to lay a hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. So he called them to himself, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal 
condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. So he said that because they said he has an, that Jesus had an unclean spirit. Verse 31, then his brothers and his mother came and standing outside, they sent to him calling him and a multitude was sitting around him. And they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now Jesus, in the middle of all that, said there's one sin for which he did not die. That there's one sin. One sin that once it was committed, uh, there's no divine pardon that can take it away. That's the, the sin that God's delete button does not reach, does not touch. And when a person commits this sin, they're assured They're as assured of hell as if they were already there. Now, before we get to that sin, let's kind of set the scene. Take some notes tonight. I hope you're ready to take notes. You're going to have to. Number one, write this down. Number one, the whole setting here is dealing with wrong expectations of Jesus. Incorrect, wrong expectations of Jesus. Mark gives us two groups of people that come to confront Jesus. One group loves Jesus. One group hates Jesus. One group wants Jesus to live. Another group wants Jesus to die. One group wants to help him, they think. The other group wants to harm him. You couldn't find two groups of people that were more different and had different motives, but they were both these groups were trying to inflict the same thing on Jesus, and that's control. They wanted to control Jesus. Both groups were disappointed by him. Both groups were confused by him. Both groups were uh, living with different expectations of what Jesus should say, what he should do, where he should be. Both groups want to control Jesus, but Jesus isn't going to have any of it. And so who are the two groups? Number, write this one down. The first group is his family. His family. They've got misplaced expectations of Jesus, and they absolutely want to control him. His family heard about all the things that he's saying, all the things that he's doing, and because they grew up with Jesus, they're like, he is crazy. And so they literally travel 65 miles from Nazareth to Capernaum with a plan. Look at verse 21 again. It says, but when his own people, that's his family, so when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay a hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind, right? Uh, In chapter 6, Mark tells us that Jesus had four half-brothers and a a multiple number of sisters. We're not sure how many. Of course, Jesus has a different father, but they've all got the same mother, Mary. And Mark says there in that text that when they heard about this, they went to lay hold of him. This is a hostile takeover. This is an intervention. we got to have an intervention on Jesus. He done lost his mind. These people are going to kill him. All these things he's saying, all these things that he's doing, we've got to go get Jesus and save Jesus from himself. He's crazy. He's delusional. He's irrational. I mean, they literally plan to physically grab the creator of the world and haul him home. After all, he's claiming to be God. He's saying he's the Messiah. He's gathering men to follow him as a rabbi, and people want him to die. Now, keep in mind that Jesus is the oldest child in this family. He's the oldest child, and apparently Joseph, right, his adopted father, if you will, 
has already passed away, has died. So in that culture, Jesus would have been expected to come home, to take over the business, to run the carpenter shop, to kind of lead the family and carry on the family name. That would have been normal in that culture. That's what would have been expected. But Jesus is out here raising Cain, and everybody wants to kill him because they're saying uh, that he blasphemes God. See, Jesus was not only not living up to their expectations, He's risking his life. And so intervention, we got to go save Jesus. You see the irony here? They're trying to save Jesus. Look at this next slide. Jesus came from heaven to save them, but they came from home to save him. (laughs) They thought they were going to save Jesus. Now, okay, so that's the first group. And Mark interrupts this confrontation with Jesus with another group. Write this down. So it was his family, and then it was also his enemies. His enemies. It was the big, wig, religious people. Traveled 85 miles from Jerusalem to Capernaum to straighten out Jesus. There's always people that think that they need to straighten people out, isn't there? And so while Jesus' family said he's crazy, Jesus is out of his mind. These religious leaders said he's possessed. He's possessed by the devil. That's what they say. Now, they couldn't deny what, see, they couldn't deny the miracles They were there for everybody to see. They couldn't deny the miracles, so they had to come up with a story for how he was doing it. Look at verse 22. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. They're saying the reason why he can cast demons out of people is because he is a demon, and they're on the same side. They play on the same team. He casts out demons because he is a demon, right? So one group of people loved Jesus, one group of people hated Jesus and said he had a demon. But both groups refused to believe Jesus. Both groups refused to believe Jesus, and they wanted to control him. Let me ask you, be honest with yourself. Look at this next slide. Have you ever been disappointed with Jesus? Have you ever been disappointed with Jesus? Like, I mean, like for real, where maybe he didn't live up to your expectations. Maybe he didn't do what you thought he should do. You wanted him to heal that person, give you that job, get you into that school, help you with that wild child or keep you from getting that divorce, but it didn't happen. I mean, you did your part, right? You asked and you prayed, but it didn't happen. You asked God, you know, that your will would be done. And when your will wasn't done, you're like, Jesus, let me down, man. And we've all been there. Jesus is either absent or he just doesn't know what's best because if Jesus knew what was best, he would make this happen for me. You know what we often try to do when circumstances get difficult and disappointing? We try to control Jesus, just like his family, just like those, his enemies. We try to control Jesus. We want him to do what we want. Write this down. Disbelief about who Jesus is, who he really is, always fuels doubt about what he's doing. The family didn't believe him. His enemies didn't believe him. And when we lose sight of who Jesus really is, it always makes us confused about what he's doing. You and I would never trust the hand of Christ if we don't understand the heart of Christ. When life gets crazy and circumstances are out of control, we wonder where God is and what he's doing. And we've been talking about this on Sunday morning, but if you don't really believe that Jesus is the savior of your soul and loves you and he's for you and, he, and he's on your side and he forgives you and all of those things, Right, That his love for you is deeper than the sea. That he cares about you more than any, uh, anybody else in this world. That he's all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful. That he's everywhere all the time. That he promises that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. That he's working everything together for good. 
If you don't really believe that's who he is, you're always going to doubt what he's doing. What he's doing. Real faith in Jesus has to start with who Jesus is before you ever trust what he's doing. Now Jesus, now he's so good at this, he really quickly put all the religious leaders back uh, in their place. And he basically says, your logic that I'm working against Satan because I'm with Satan, right? That, this, that, that I'm working against demons because me and the demons are on the same team, it doesn't really make any sense, right? A general's not going to wipe out his own army to win a war. Look at verse 27. He tells this amazing little quick parable. He says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Jesus called Satan the prince of this world, and so he's the strong man of the house. And Jesus is the one who comes into the world. He's bound Satan before reclaiming his possessions. People, you and me. Jesus is only reclaiming what the devil stole to begin with. Uh, Jesus came in the world to reclaim and save people. That's why he came. He's in the people business. But in order to do that, he had to deal with Satan. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not working with Satan. Satan, I'm defeating him. I'm not working with the devil. I'm defeating the devil. And the scribes would have known that. Listen, these are religious experts. And they would have known that there's only uh, one being in the universe that could do the things that Jesus was doing to defeat Satan, and that's God. And what Jesus was saying to these religious people, and what he'd been saying is that he was God. When he healed people like only he could heal people, he's saying, I'm God. When he defeated demons like only God could defeat demons, he's saying, I'm God. When he was forgiving people their sins, when only God can forgive people their sins, he's saying, I'm God. When he gave himself the messianic title of son of man, he was saying, I'm God. When he said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, I am God. And he, when he said what he said here in Mark chapter 6 is, I'm here to deal with and defeat Satan and reclaim my people and take back my house. He's saying, once again, I am God. You've got to believe who Jesus is before you believe, what, uh, you even understand about what he is doing. So that's the setting. Number two, write this down. Then there's a warning to the rejectors. Is that even a word? Did I make that word up? A rejector? Rejector? I don't know, but they exist in every church in America. Every church in America. Rejectors. They reject the word of God. They've hardened their hearts. Look at verse 28. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Oh, my goodness. Have you ever... Go back to verse 28 for just a second. Go back one. Have you ever seen an awesome verse and a terrible verse together like that in all of your life? Look, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of man, and whatever blasphemies they may utter, all sins may be forgiven. Yay! And then look at verse 29, and then it's like, but... It's like good news, terrible news. He who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. I mean, you've got one of the greatest verses in all of the Bible right next to one of the most horrifying verses in all of the Bible. Uh, verse 28 reveals all the sin that God will forgive. Verse 29 reveals the sin that he won't. God is never neutral on sin. Uh, he either forgives it or he punishes it. He never ignores it and he never overlooks it. I've mentioned this before. Often as believers, we think that we got to get out of jail free card or somehow we got to pass 
for our sin. No, sin was paid for. Sin is always paid for. It's either punished or it's forgiven. All sins, murder, adultery, lying, hypocrisy, stealing, suicide, gossip, all sins. You you can even nail the Son of God to a cross and be forgiven. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You can nail the Son of God to a cross and be forgiven of your sins. The width and the depth and the breadth of the love and the forgiveness of God knows no bounds. Look at Psalm 86, verse 5. It says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. 1 John 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, there's no doubt you are a great sinner. But thank God that Jesus is an even greater forgiver. I don't care what you've done. I don't even care how many times you've done it. I don't care who you did it to. If you repent of your sin and ask Jesus to forgive you, he will. That's the good news. But again, as awesome as verse 28 is, verse 29 is terrifying. Look at it again. Verse 29 says, But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. The unpardonable, unforgivable sin that cannot be uh, forgiven and will not be forgiven uh, subjects a person to hell. And that's not just regular, you know, dollar gentry store blasphemy, okay? Some blasphemy can be forgiven. Um, and uh, um, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy, once he said that he was a blasphemer, and, but he had received great mercy from God, right? That he had blasphemed God. It's not all blasphemy that's unforgivable. It's one kind. Look at this next slide. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You can blaspheme uh, God the Father and be forgiven. You can blaspheme God the Son and be forgiven. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit of God, you can never be forgiven. If there's a sin that Christ did not die for and refuses to uh, set you free, if you know for a fact there's a sin out there that Christ did not die for, and if I commit this sin, he will refuse to set me free, don't you think it's important that you know what it is? So what is it? Write this down. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the continual, intentional rejection of the Holy Spirit concerning the divine person and saving work of Jesus Christ. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the continual, intentional rejection of the Holy Spirit concerning the divine person and saving work of Jesus Christ. Now, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit isn't saying like, the Holy Spirit's a knucklehead or hitting, you know, stubbing your toe and using the Holy Spirit's name as a cuss word or something. That's not what this is talking about. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is exactly what we see here. It's not about the sin committed by a person, but the light rejected. The only sin that God refuses to forgive is terminal unbelief. God refuses to forgive terminal unbelief. Not a one-time event. It's not a one-time action. It's the willful, intentional, continual rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit and, and the work that the Holy Spirit was sent in the world to do. I mean, because apart from the Holy Spirit, you can't know God. You can't know Jesus. You can't experience grace. You can't ex- understand sin. You won't get the gospel. 
I've got these in my notes. I didn't, I didn't include them in yours. They're not on the slides. Let me just give you a handful of things the Holy Spirit was sent in the world to do. I mean, just a couple. The Holy Spirit was sent to convict people of sin, to guide people. To, that's John 16, 8. Guide people to truth in John 16, 13. To point people to Christ, John 15, 26. To set people free from the law of sin and death, Romans chapter 8, verse 2. To give people eternal life, Romans 8, 10, and 11. And to regenerate people into the children of God, Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. The reason why the rejection of the Holy Spirit is unforgivable is because he is the access to, uh, uh, to forgiveness. It's as if this sanctuary only had one door. All, not, one door. That was the only door. And if you were going to get in here, you've got to come through that door. And listen, if you're going to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior and receive forgiveness, the door is the Holy Spirit. And again, the unforgivable, unpardonable sin isn't necessarily the sin that you do. It's the light that you reject, that you reject the light that the Holy Spirit is shining on the truth of the gospel and illuminating to your mind and to your heart, and you willfully reject it. He's the access to forgiveness. Every time a person hears the gospel and says no, every time a person feels just a little bit of guilt about their sin and conviction over their sin, but they just keep on anyway, every time light shines in their heart about the truth of Christ, every time they felt the the invitation to salvation, but they refuse to give into it, each time they say no, each time they turn away, each time they refuse to accept, their heart gets a little bit harder and a little bit harder and a little bit harder. Look at this next slide. And eventually there comes a time in a person's life that they say no for the last time. God will put his no with your no. And that'll be it. It'll be the last time. They won't ever have to say no again because they're never going to be invited again. Sooner or later, God will put his no with your no. If, see, if you will not repent, you cannot be forgiven. You will not repent apart from the leading and prompting of the Holy Spirit. The unforgivable sin has irreversible consequences. Now, why do you think that Jesus mentioned the unforgivable sin here? The unpardonable. Why in this text? We got his, his family and them coming, and you got the, the scribes, the religious leaders, everybody's trying to control Jesus. Why do you think he mentioned here? Think about it. And it even says in that one verse, like, this is why he said this. But the scribes and Pharisees, if you're a scribe, you had scripture memorized. You knew the Bible. You know scripture. They knew what God had said. They knew what God had promised. They knew. They had seen the glorious, powerful, miraculous works of Jesus, the things that he was doing. They heard with their own ears, so they saw it. They heard with their ears the gospel taught by Jesus himself. They had read all that God had written. They had seen all that God had done, and they heard all that God had said. And what did they do with it? They gave the devil the credit. Oh, he's full of He's He's got a demon. He's Beelzebub. He's demon-possessed. The reason why he can do all these things, he's demon-possessed. They gave the devil credit for it. They said it was the work of the devil. You know, you have a hard heart when you call good evil and evil good. That should, that should be the, the theme for 2019. They were continually rejecting the ways of God and God's word. 
And they were on the very precipice of crossing a line of unbelief and unrepentance and of no return. They're right there. And Jesus here is warning them, you are about to be forever condemned. You're going to keep saying no to God and God's about to say no to you. I wonder how many people have sat in churches for years, heard God's call, felt God's conviction, seen the power of God, but yet they refuse time and time again to humble themselves and repent of their sin and surrender themselves to Christ. In essence, Jesus is saying it's possible for a person that's still alive to cross over from won't be saved, refuse. A person can cross over from won't be saved to can't be saved. Terrifying. Terrifying. But let me help you. Look at this next slide. If a person's worried that maybe they've committed the unforgivable sin, it means they haven't. You haven't. Why? Because you wouldn't care. You would have hardened your heart so long and so much, you wouldn't be worried about that. I wouldn't even speak to you. A person who has uh, too hard-hearted, too stubborn, too far gone to even care anymore. That's what this, this verse is dealing with. No one has committed the unpardonable sin will ever again feel the disturbing, convicting presence of the Holy Spirit. They for, what happens is when people harden their hearts to God, they forfeit any possibility of being saved and forgiven. They reject the Holy Spirit of God. That sounds like me right there, Gretchen. <laughs> That's okay. You can play that later. Now, Jesus, and isn't that an intense teaching? The fact that there is this unforgivable uh, sin, this unpardonable sin, that you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that you can reject God, deny God, turn from God so many times that eventually he just lets you. Right? He doesn't say no to you. He just puts his no with your no. Right? But Jesus transitions, write this down. The third thing is the blessing of eternal family. Now, Jesus here is going to redefine some relationships. Mark comes back to Jesus' family who's come. So, all right, so Jesus, the family's coming trying to control Jesus. The, the religious leaders are trying to control Jesus. He straightened the religious leaders out, and now he's going to talk about some other things uh, who have come, his family who've come to control him and take him home. Somebody's like, hey, Jesus, your family's outside for you, man. Your mama and your brothers, your mama and them are here. Look at verse 33. But he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. Whoa, is Jesus dissing his own family? Is Jesus, just, you just let Mary wait. Mary, did you know that you're going to have to stand outside because Jesus ain't got time for you? No. No, 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 no. Of course not. I mean, on the cross, in the middle of dying the most brutal, anguish, painful death in the history of the world, nobody else has ever died for the sins of all men. We have no idea. It's incalculable the suffering that Jesus faced on the cross, far more than just physical pain of nails piercing his body. The worst death imaginable that anybody's ever faced. And he's like, hey, man, take care of my mom. Right? 
Even in that moment, he's making sure Mary was taken care of. So is he dissing Mary here? Absolutely not. That's not what he's doing. And what he's saying is your earthly family is important, but your earthly family is temporary. Temporary. What's most important is knowing that what eternal family that you're a part of and that you're a part of eternal family. How do we know who's in the family of God? He says, whoever does the will of God. Look at this next slide. The evidence you're in God's family is not genetics, but obedience. The evidence you're in God's family is not attendance, but obedience. The evidence that you're in God's family is not giving, but obedience. The evidence that you're in God's family is not whatever, it's obedience. That's the evidence. Jesus says, those who do God's will are my family. What's God's will? Not To not like it when people come to church? I just feel like griping all of a sudden. I'm not going to. What is, what, what's God's will? How do I obey? How do I obey Jesus? Well, what has Jesus been preaching all the way up to this point? Matter of fact, if you go all the way back to Mark chapter 1, look at verse 15. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What is God's will? That you repent and believe the gospel. That's God's will. That's the first step of obedience. And whoever does that is considered by Jesus to be part of the family. And those who refuse to do that, he does not consider to be part of the family. The truth is, if the Lord tarries and nothing changes, there are people in our families who are going to go to hell. That's why you need to be sharing the gospel and encourage them not to harden their hearts, man. Turn from their sin. Turn to Christ so they can be forever forgiven. But Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. This is God's will. I heard the story one time about a, a young soldier boy in a battlefield that was laying there bleeding out, dying, and the chaplain made it to him, and he cradled the guy in his hands. He had his head in his arms, and the chaplain asked him, said, son, is there anything that I can do for you? And this young man who was dying, he said, no, sir, there's nothing anybody can do for me. He said, I need somebody who can undo some things. So he didn't need somebody that could do something. He needs somebody to go back and undo some things. Look at this next slide. Jesus is the great undoer. Undoer. He can undo your regrets, your shame, your mistakes, your sin, your own unforgiveness, your hardness of your heart. He's the one whose blood washes and cleanses and makes whiter than snow. Jesus is the great undoer. That though your sins be as crimson, he'll make them as white as snow. What is God's will for your life? That you allow him to undo all of your sin and that you trust him as Lord and Savior. His will, it all starts right there. The unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin is to say no to that all the way into eternity. And God will put your no with his no and you'll be separated from God for all of eternity. An eternity in a place called hell. And you're going to go because you chose it. Because you wanted to. You don't want anything to do with God now. You won't have anything to do with God then. Believe. Repent. Turn from your sin. Trust the gospel. Trust Jesus Christ. He's the great undoer. Amen? Let's stand and be dismissed.